Welcome to the first episode of Backroom Beats here in 2021. I am your host, Lamar Harris, a.k.a. DJ Nooney, hanging out with CJ Conrad. And I am excited that you guys are tuning in. Uh, 2020, we left it behind. Hopefully all the foolishness got left behind. But we are excited for the things that 2021 are going to bring. And I am excited to talk about our guest we have for the first episode of 2021. He is a jazz and electronic musician, composer, live remixer, producer, uh, internationally known, and in my opinion, one of the best keyboardist, pianists, and arrangers of our time. I am talking about the legendary Mark DeClive Lowe. What's going man, on, man? <laughs> thank you for that beautiful introduction. I'm, I'm blushing. <laughs> how are you? So how you been, man? I've been surviving. Um, you know, we're, we're like you just mentioned, we're entering year two of COVID. And um, it's been it's been a really interesting experience. I mean, you know, there's that's a whole conversation itself, isn't it? How have you been? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I spent 20 years on the road, like nonstop. Wow. And so the last, you know, since March has been the longest I've been in one place since 1999. Wow. I mean, so it's, it's a, kind of been a trip. It's a, it's a whole nother different feeling being at home versus like always just on the go, you know? Yeah. And I, I've, I've really found a lot of value in it and it's taught me a lot about, you know, my kind of personal growth and humanity. And I think there's a, there's a reason why some musicians choose to never get off the road. True. You know, it's like, you know, Freud, Freud would have a field day. It's like, yo, so what are you all running away from? <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it was, it's been really healthy for me actually. And, and also physically, like I, you know, I travel with a lot of equipment. I'm often, often traveling solo. So I'm, you know, I'm carrying like almost 200 pounds of equipment around by myself, different country every night. And that's just physically taxing. Yeah. So it's been nice to not do that. <laughs> yeah. But you've still been creating a lot of good stuff, man. I've been, you know, keeping up with you online and um, you've just been putting out a lot of great content. Uh, what's been some of the inspiration that you've been using during this time to just keep creating? Because I know some artists have just been kind of like in a, I wouldn't say it's a funk, but they've just been running against like, you know, when you factor in life and all the other stuff, it sometimes just gets hard mm -hmm. to create. And especially if you got young ones running around the house or mm -hmm. all the mm -hmm. other stuff, you know, where, what are you doing to just, you know, just get past all of that to be able to keep creating? I mean, I think a, a big part of it is, is obviously out of necessity. Um, you know, don't, don't work, don't eat kind of thing. But for me, when the, you know, when the lockdown started, I, it was, I think it was March the 12th, I was driving up to San Fran from LA. I was supposed to play at SF Jazz that night with my friend, uh, Haley Nicewanger, her band May Sun. So we're about, we're about an hour out of San Fran and we were listening to the radio and, and Gavin Newsom, the governor, was, uh, was talking about, you know, no gatherings, over 50 people and all that kind of thing. Mm. So we're like, we just drove five hours and now the gig's canceled. And then of course, like every musician over the next few hours, every gig got canceled, right? Right. So for me, um, I kind of, I actually made a decision or, yeah, I kind of, I kind of, I, I kind of decided that 
touring is not coming back at that point. Like I wasn't thinking, oh, stuff would be cool by June. I was like, this is it's over. Touring is literally over. Um, and so that made me really kind of take stock of, of everything I do and, you know, where, where is my value and what do I, what, what do I, what do I really enjoy and what do I want to do? And if touring's never coming back, what does that look like? So, so for me, there was, was quite a lot of peace in that in a way. Like, I mean, I had like, I had an Asia tour the next month, obviously gone, South Africa after that gone, Europe after that gone, you know, it was, it was, it was no small thing. Um, but the, the main thing which really kind of to speak to your question directly, which really kept me going with the creating this year, last year, was actually launching my Patreon. Oh, wow. And um, it's funny. I've been I was saying, saying, saying to someone the other day how it's funny how like everyone knows what an OnlyFans is and how it works, <laughs> but, but no one knows what a Patreon is. You still got to explain that. Right. <laughs> and so for the listeners, it's the same thing. It's like a subscription membership site. Um, you know, OnlyFans obviously got the cosign from the sex industry, which really helped it blow up. Um, but yeah, I'd wanted to do a Patreon for years, but I always felt like, you know, if I have monthly subscribers and I'm always touring, how can I deliver content to them? And so figuring, well, I'm not going anywhere. Now's the time to start. So I started that quite early in the pandemic. And um, what was really cool was the sense of community that, I found in through Patreon, like it was it was actually a deeper sense of community than I've had with fans any time in my life, and that's quite a statement having been you know releasing and touring for for two decades. So that was it was just a really um, affirming and positive felt felt like a very positive action. You know, we do things like each month I'd invite everyone to come along and we'd jump on a zoom and bring like a piece of music that they were inspired by. So we'd listen to the music together and talk about it. Oh, cool. And that's like a real, it's a really simple action. And I imagine for, for you and me both, like we're old enough to remember a time when, you know, your, your boy would get a new album and be like, yo, I got this record come out and, and you listen to it together. Right. Right. Which is a whole different culture to now where it's like, Hey, the new, you know, the new knowledge record dropped. Have you checked it out? It's like, Oh, I'll check it out. So we're all individually listening on our phone or whatever. Right. So just that kind of collective community, um, which is totally you know, indebted to technology, obviously, but that, that really kept me going this year. And, and then I'd have to, I'd have to create, you know, I promised everyone a new exclusive production each month. So there's a necessity for me to create. So each month, is a new joint. So eight months in, that is now eight joints. It's almost a whole album that only exists on Patreon. Wow. You know, so stuff like that. And, um, you know, I found that was really, really great for me. And then I was also very fortunate. I was working on a project right before the pandemic that um, with an organization, a nonprofit in Richmond, Virginia. And the plan was they were going to take me to Hiroshima, to Japan. Mm. And I was going to spend time with, atomic bomb survivors hearing their stories and then create work music out of that, like inspired by their stories. So then the pandemic hits and obviously that couldn't happen. And this organization, bless them, they were able to pivot on a dime and they're like, okay, we can't do that. So we're going to do a virtual festival. So it's called La Saber Festival. And they had me as the artist in residence. I was helping curate. Um, I was doing live streams for them. Each month, each featured artist, I'd do a live remix set of the, of the featured artist. And 
So there's a, there's a whole lot of work there, which, you know, it had a budget, which is great. It was monthly for the first four or five months of the pandemic, which kept me focused. Mm. Um, and then not least of all, actually having a budget meant I had the resources to get my live streaming game together. Like, you know, we were just chatting before we started the podcast. Like, I think, you you know, you know what I mean? Like I went and got the video switcher <laughs> and the cameras and the, you know, work, worked it all out, right? Because right. it's, I mean, I've, I've always been a, an avid technology adoptee. Um, you know, I remember in, in 1998 or nine, around then I was, I was in London and I was um, collaborating a lot with my friends, Bugs in the Attic. And I remember walking into the studio with my laptop and a little PCMCI, CI, PCMCIA or P, some kind of card which goes in the laptop, right. which breaks out into XLRs, right? And so I was doing music on my laptop and this is like before 2000. And so all, all, the, all the producers, all the Bugs crew, they were like, oh my God, you see Mark came in and he's making music on his laptop. And, you know, so I've always felt like technology has been something to jump on, you know, as, as quick as possible. So I think, you know, this last year has really given a lot of opportunity in that world, in that realm too. That's true. I, I think in 98, I think I still had a, uh, a Motorola phone. <laughs> hey, <laughs> the great it, it worked though, right? It, <laughs> it worked. <laughs> and a pager, man. You know, like even, uh, I, like I said, some of the stuff that I've been seeing you do online, I remember, uh, I think it was back in, um, uh, it was a, a, it was a, it was a game that was on and you just created this like freestyle set to like the Lakers, to the Lakers oh, plan. Yeah. Like that's, oh, yeah. that's crazy. You know, <laughs> you know, it's fun, that was funny because like, you know, I'm, I, I love, I love my basketball and. I mean, I grew up in the era of, you know, Jordan and, and, and Magic and Bird. And for me, growing up in New Zealand, that was all about the Bulls. I mean, there was just no question who was who. Um, but then when I moved to L.A., it was like peak Lakers, three-peak Kobe. And so, you know, I was like, well, I live in L.A. It's all about the Lakers. So right. obviously LeBron coming was a big deal. And then, um, yeah, the last season, I, I think that might have even been playoffs time. Um and I'd scheduled a live stream unknowingly, unknowing, you know, unknowingly to me at the same time as the game. Ah. I was like, oh, wait, what am I going to do? And so I was like, well, why not? Why not put the game on and just vibe out and, you know, make beats and play music to it and, and just interpret those moments in the way that I, 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 I feel it kind of thing. And I mean, the NBA took that off YouTube about 10 seconds later. <laughs> But, but the people who, who caught the live stream were, were, were they, they, they got the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I got, I got, I got to the, I did the first, whole first half, I think. Um, so that was, that was a lot of fun. But I love that just, you know, taking inspiration from unexpected things. You know, it's, I feel like, you know, music is so, it's so broad and so diverse and there's so much possibility where, I mean, you know, music's in nature before we even, before man even picks up an instrument. You know, it's, it's in the wind, it's in the trees, it's in the water, it's everywhere, and obviously in the animals. And so the idea for me of you know, taking visual inspiration and creating from that, I, I find it really liberating and freeing. Like, you know, no, no two people will do that the same, right? Like, sure. if, if you're going to put on a ball game and improvise to it, it's going to be completely different to what I would do the same game. Right. And that's, that's the beauty of it. You know, and you've always been, man, like seen to be pushing the bounds. Like uh, you would do stuff where it's just a viola, a harp, uh, you know, and 
and and a flute player or do something with like a whole obscure type ensemble with somebody painting alongside of it. And I remember the first time I ever saw you in St. Louis at Lola, I was like, man, this guy has a lot of stuff in this bag. <laughs> it's like every time we kept looking around, you were breaking out more stuff. Like I know right. he got a mini control in that bag. Yeah, he does got a mini control in that bag. Like man, all three. <laughs> right. You know, like like how do you even like get into like the mindset of even like getting the gear to like flow with the video and just creating like the 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 experience that people can experience, like just with all the technology and stuff like that, but still just keep it organic like that, you know? I mean, I, I guess it has a lot to do with, you know, the music I grew up loving and what attracts me to that music specifically. Um, so I, you know, I grew up in New Zealand and piano was my first instrument. My dad kind of forced me onto that at four years old. Like I didn't, I didn't know any better and I was scared of him. So I did what I was told kind of thing. Um, and he was super into big band jazz, like 1930s stuff. My older brother was into like kind of early bop, kind of 1950s bop. Um, so there was jazz around me for sure. And I heard that um, and it was, it was always around. And then I'd, I'd go to the, I remember I'd go to the music stores after school and just hang out and just play with keyboards and like, not knowing what I was doing, just like the scene fun. <laughs> um, and it got to a point where I, where I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to buy some of this stuff. So I got a keyboard and a drum machine and a sequencer, like really, this is like 88 maybe. Um, and I didn't know what I was doing. I was just kind of like making, making noise with it. And I remember going to, I went to school one day and my friend at school, like, but, you know, most of my most of my peers were listening to you know pop and indie rock, a lot of guitar music, mm-hmm. and to be honest, it just didn't. None of it resonated with me, and I didn't know why. And then my friend walks up to me before school. He had his Walkman headphones, and he puts his headphones on me, and it was the first Guy album. So I'm hearing Teddy's Jam for the first time, <laughs> losing my shit completely. And I, I didn't, I didn't know why, right? And in hindsight, I know why. And it was because it was, you know, it's keyboard-based music, so I could relate to it without even knowing I was relating to it. Um, it was, it was black music, so harmonically and rhythmically, it's coming from a whole different perspective. Uh, and and that just really spoke to me. So suddenly, I was like, oh my god, I want to be Teddy Riley. And then it was like, you know, native tongues hip hop and. It was like, you know, Belbert DeVoe happened and Rex and Effect and all this kind of stuff. And so between like, you know, Digital Underground, Brand Nubian and Guy, I was just, I was in heaven. Wow. Um, and I started just making a whole lot of loops and I didn't know what I was doing, but I started working with rappers and singers in New Zealand. And then um, one day <laughs> I, w- I woke up one day and, and I was like, all these, these, these loops and it's still bullshit. So I, I sold my equipment. I sold all my vinyl. I had records I haven't seen to this day, wow. like gone. And it was just, you know, the piano, me, and a Miles record and a Coltrane record and an Alma Jamal record. And, um, and again, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have mentors. I didn't have teachers. I just knew that that's where my heart was pulling me. Around that time, Mo Better, Mo Better Blues came out. I went to see Mo Better. You know, I'd love, I'd love to do the right thing. And then... 
Um, so I was like, Spike Lee movie, jazz, cool. And I went to that. And man, that, because I, I hadn't heard contemporary jazz. So hearing Bramford and, and Terrace Blanchard and mostly to the point Kenny Kirkland, like hearing all those musicians, not knowing who they were, but hearing that music, just I was like, this is, this is it. It's, it. It was so hip. It looks so hip. And the lifestyle portrayal was quite inviting. And the music was ridiculous. So I went out the next day, bought the soundtrack. Bramford had just dropped a record called Crazy People, Crazy People Music. Hmm. So I bought that the same day. To this day, one of my favorite jazz records ever. And so that just kind of set me on this path where I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to, one day I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to play with Art Blakey and Betty Carter and <laughs> I'm going to do all this stuff. Um, and, and the funny thing was like a few years later, like I, I like to say kind of metaphorically speaking, I tripped over a drum machine on my way to the dance floor. And that's pretty much what happened. Like, you know, I was around, I was around a lot of nightlife where there were a lot of DJs, there were jam bands, it was peak acid jazz. And so I do all these jazz gigs um, in my hometown in Auckland. And then once a month we do a jam gig at this club, which was a DJ club. And so there'd be like two drummers, rappers, turntablists, all sorts of stuff. We're just improvising. And so like, I realized how much fun that was for me. And like, you know, I, I was actually doing a jazz gig. I was at the Auckland Town Hall on stage, middle of a gig, grand piano in a suit thinking, man, I just have so much more fun playing that other gig. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> so if only I was serious about the fun gig instead of so serious about the serious gig. Right. So that became quite a turning point for me. Um, and then 1998, I spent the year traveling around the world and connected with a lot of people who became my friends and peers in London, the Bugs in the Attic crew, IG Culture, Ford Hero, Phil Asher, Rest of Soul, went to New York, connected with Joe Clausel, Francois K, DJ Spinner, wow. and just kind of went around the world um, finding this music that was, it was like everything I've ever loved in music put together in a way I could never have imagined possible. Wow. And so that really, well, and also hearing that I could, I could see how I could hear how I could contribute. It's kind of like when I first heard jungle or drum and bass, like it's, I loved it, but I, there's so much space in it. I could hear like, wait, I, I hear the space for me. I hear how I can, you know, insert myself and be part of this. So that was kind of part of the motivation, but all that to say, like, it's been this lifelong kind of back and forth between jazz and, and beat music, basically, you know, before electronic music, you know, I wasn't even thinking that, you know, I wasn't thinking the Jungle Brothers are electronic music, you know? right. <laughs> so samples and beats. Um, and, and having that back and forth and not being, you know, not being a b-boy in the sense of like, I wasn't a rapper. I wasn't DJing. I wasn't a dancer. I wasn't doing graph. It was like, you know, how, like, where, how do I relate to all this music? Well, I'm a piano player. So obviously it was through the actual music. And, you know, I, I, I get the same chills and goosebumps from like, you know, listening to, you know, Miles and Herbie and Wayne, as I do listening to like Tip and Fife and Jerobi, you know, it's like, it's, it's the same thing to me. So right. if I'm going to be in a for playing in a form, so saying, say it's hip hop or it's house music, 
that kind of organicness that I love in like Miles or Ornette or some 70s Keith Jarrett or whatever it might be, that's going to be part of the picture. Mm. And I don't, I don't, I, I couldn't like write a how to, this is how you do it so much as I feel like I've been fortunate to find a, a way to express myself given everything I love and putting it all together. Does that make any sense? I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I'm really glad you uh, broke it down the way you did saying all the references and whatnot, because it all makes sense now. Um, what I'm thinking to myself now is about the first time I heard your music was um, the Verve remixed uh, compilation, mm -hmm. the Shirley Horn Return to Paradise. Mm -hmm. I just remember thinking it was so sophisticated, but it was so, it grew, do you know what I mean? Right. And um, even more so when I finally heard Shirley Horn's original version, I was like, oh, this is completely different. But isn't that beautiful, that original? Yes. It is gorgeous. But oh. it's like, but, what oh. you did with it was so, like, loungy and it just, it, it, I haven't heard anything like it since. And I knew after I heard that, I would have to find the rest of your music. Oh, wow, man. Thank you. Yeah. I, uh, I, have, I have two two things to say about that remix. Um, one is that Shirley Horn hated it. Really? <laughs> wow. Her grandkids thought it was the dopest thing she ever did. Mm -hmm. um, but she, she a, before she passed away, there was an NPR special. And um, the, the, D, the NPR DJ was... It was just him and him and Shirley going through the catalog, and and he's like, "Well, here's saying to Shirley, here's something that you you may not have even heard. I don't know." And so he plays my remix, and of course, you know, I I chopped her voice, right? It's not, you know, I I, I totally reconfigured it. So as soon as the voice comes in, she's like, "Oh no no no, stop that, stop that, no 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 no, stop that, no 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 no." <laughs> You know, that actually makes sense knowing what I know about Shirley Horn because yeah. she likes the laid back in the groove. Of course. And the way you yeah. it was like a complete... It's a whole different thing, right? And, yeah. in the, and then the other aspect with that remix, which was interesting, was... Um, so I had not long before that put out my album Six Degrees on, on Universal, on Universal Jazz. So Universal, own Verve, so it's all kind of part of the same parcel. So when the New York office was doing Verve Remix, they reached out to me, I think primarily because I was a Universal UK artist. So it's kind of, you know, the in-house thing. And so I was kind of working on the, on the remix and I spoke to the A&R because they were checking in with me like, you know, how's it going? And I'm like, oh, it's cool, you know, how's it? And I asked them, how's the project going? Like, oh, it's great. We've got masters at work and Jazzy Jeff and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, I just had a meltdown. <laughs> I just, you know, I threw out everything I'd done and started again. Oh, wow. Just with that knowledge of like, man, my, my heroes are doing this record. Um, and so I'm glad I did because it, it, it worked out great. And then, and then that track actually became kind of, it became the, the, the blueprint, the production blueprint for what, um, for what I would go on to do for the Tide to Rising album. You know, that, that was a clear move from the Six Degrees production into a new kind of level of, of production for me. Mm. Yeah, and one thing I think is so really dope about what you do is that there is very much a production aspect with you and vocalists that just, it, it just melds together perfectly. 
but then you also have this totally instrumental side to you that is almost unrelated. You know what I mean? <laughs> Even when that's you kind of part of my, That's been part of my branding challenge through my career. Like people are like, well, so what do you do? <laughs> it's like, well, I, you know, I like house music and I like free jazz. So, <laughs> um, And it's funny how jazz has in the last maybe five years really come into that conversation around electronic music and, and hybridity. Um, and, you know, not to sound like the old dude, but I did feel like, wait, I mean, you know, <laughs> we were doing this 20 years ago. Kind of thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, there's something about, there, for me, there was always something about electronic music and dance music and club music where I wanted to work out, like I, I, the best analogy I can give you is, is like a kid eating dinner and you want to eat their vegetables. So you might give them a burger, but you're gonna pack that burger full of salad too, right? You gotta you gotta trick them. Right. And so I always felt like that. It's like there were there were moments in time, there were gigs I've done where it's a packed dance floor, and I know that if you took the beats away, this is basically free jazz. You know, so I was like, yeah, we got these people dancing to this stuff, or really quite twisted harmony. It's like they don't even know, but we've got them in the groove to this. We've got them right in the pocket to something they wouldn't even check for so kind of and i mean i don't know if i was underestimating the audience but i thought that was always an intention to find the the subversive way in to bring one world into the other and it and then it happened like when i moved to la like i've been here 12 years now and my 10 years in london i literally didn't play the acoustic piano like i just i was a complete judas to jazz my my drummer my drummer in my band who's a killing jazz drummer too he's like man let's let's go play a trio gig just for fun I'm like no man let's not <laughs> or some producer would be like yeah let's put some piano on this track it's like no let's just pull up the Juno you know <laughs> kind of I, I I was really quite consciously rejecting it and and trying to deconstruct the musician that I felt like I I grown up as. Um, and, and also I was in a scene in the Broken Beat community where, you know, things could be jazzy, but not too jazzy. There was like a, a limit, mm -hmm. um, which is where that subversiveness really comes in. But then I moved to LA in uh, late 2008 and circumstances and people in my life led me to reconnect with the piano. Mm -hmm. And so it was actually my, my ex-wife, Mia Andrews, who's a, fantastic artist singer songwriter she was doing her debut show and we just started hanging out and she was like i want you to play piano on my on my gig i was like cool i'll, I'll bring my roads it's like no i said i want you to play piano on my gig <laughs> so the spot had a little baby grand and I, I honestly hadn't played piano forever and then a lot of people came out with that show and um you know they came out to support her and see what she was doing and then there were also the heads out there who knew my music, but they knew like, you know, the Tides of Rising album and the remixes. And they're like, wait, what's he doing at the, at the piano? Like a lot of people didn't even know I grew up playing piano. And so that was a really special reconnection for me where it was like, you know, hanging out with an old friend again and just realizing, oh yeah, I, I do love this. And then a lot of things in, in LA kind of brought me back into jazz in a big way, like, there's a singer here named Dwight Tribble who came through Ferris Sanders' band. Um, and I started playing in his group and I started playing in an Ethiopian jazz group playing Mulatu Atstake's music. 
Um, so there were all these opportunities to really explore the piano again and and explore sounds I've had in my head, which like everything I love about, say, Miles's quintet live at the plug nickel, like that kind of freedom and depth of exploration. I couldn't do that in a in a club setting. Like I could allude to some of the aspects, but I could, you know you can't do it with when you're on the grid with electronics. Mm-hmm. So, as just that as an example, to be able to to be able to actually take inspiration from those kinds of feelings and 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 memories and music I love, and to be able to explore that through the piano again, was was amazing. So, it's almost like like the UK decade was, you know, really my formative production time. And then the last decade plus in LA has been my kind of reconnecting the whole, the holistic picture of the whole story of, you know, what I, what I grew up doing and loving from jazz to hip hop to jungle to house, and then able to bring it into one picture again. It's been, you know, it feels like a real blessing to be able to do that. Wow. I know recently one of the places that you uh, frequently used to record it uh, and play and play it, uh, the Blue oh. Whale just closed. Man. It's, it seems to be happening all around the country more and more. Um, yeah. Where do you see the scene kind of going, like in general, like as places kind of start disappearing more and more, like to be able to, for artists to come out and just do their originals and express their ideas? What do you, how do you think that landscape's going to look in the next couple of years? I, I think I, I sound like a pessimist with this kind of thing. And I think most of the conversation is around optimism. Um, I think there's a really healthy balance that needs to be struck between optimism and, pe- and pessimism. <laughs> uh, just speaking to the blue whale, I mean, that's, it's such a loss. I mean, I've, I've been fortunate to play, you know, literally all over the world and there is not a single club anywhere that functions in the way that place functioned. Wow. There's a, there was a way that, you know, like some, some venues when you're playing in the room, you kind of have to really assert yourself against the vibe of the room to create the vibe you want. Right. And then other venues, the room is inviting to whatever vibe you want to create and becomes part of the part of the vibe. It's, it's actually a lot easier in those rooms to, to perform, mm. generally speaking. So the, the Blue Whale was like that. The Blue Whale was like, like a member of the band on stage with you. Like I, I went in there and actually the, the live of the Blue Whale EP I put out, the first track on that evergreen was literally just a scrap of paper with a couple of chords on it. And I just felt so underprepared, but obviously the, the musicians playing with me had a big part to do, this, to do with this as well. But the room, I just, it, that taught me, wow, I can bring in anything into this room and the room will be part of, it's almost ceremonial. The room's part of the, the, the process and the creativity. And so losing that space is, I mean, it's tragic. There's, there's no, there's literally nowhere like it. There's nowhere else in LA, that's for sure, to play music specifically in the way you could in that room. Um, and like you said, it's going to happen a lot more. Like the, I saw there was a, I don't know if it's a, the Save Our Stages thing or something. They got some, mm. there's some money in the, in from Congress. Um, but I mean, that's not. I don't see that filtering down to the the DIY club, which is run by the person who just loves music and isn't doing it to be a, to be a millionaire. You know, I see, I see Live Nation getting a lot of money when they don't need it. Don't don't get us started, Mark. Don't get us started. I mean, you, bro, you started it. So. 
I so did. did. I did. And I, I mean, I don't think it bodes well. You know, I think that. I mean, I've, I've been having, I've been hearing conversations around this kind of thing a lot on on Clubhouse recently, and a lot of people on there seem to be talking from the mainstream model. And so, when it comes to touring and venues, they're talking about Live Nation and AEG, and and that's not that's not that's like the those are basically the outliers as I see it in cultural terms. You know, it's the it's the independent artists, independent musicians, independent venues, independent promoters. Those are the people that move the needle and push the dial and change culture. And the ripple effect eventually reaches the mainstream in some form. You know, I, I feel like, you know, Missy and Timberland are great examples of that. You know, had you not had jungle and drum and bass happen in the UK, then we wouldn't have Missy and Timberland in the same form we have them. And that's undisputable. So there's just a, there's a nature of independent creativity that is the lifeblood of culture. So that, you know, I do worry about that because these venues, like you might go to some of these venues on a Friday or Saturday, like two years ago, and it'd be packed. And you're like, oh, they're doing great. But you go on a Tuesday or a Wednesday and there's more people on the bandstand than there are in the audience. Yep. You know, when the spot's packed out, that venue is breaking even. They're, they're paying off their losses, right? So you're talking about venues that are break even at best, who are doing it for the love, for the culture. They're not going to come back. Like, why, why, why would you come back as a venue owner? Like, I've been busting my balls the whole time without a pandemic. And now you want me to come back and, and then the landlord's still asking for eight months rent, right? Right. So you have that aspect. And then you have the idea that there'll be more musicians than before who want to play. There'll be more musicians who will play for less. Venues will want to pay less. Promoters will want to pay less. I don't. The, I see one positive. The one positive I see is that I think pandemic and, and immediate post-pandemic traveling is still not going to be that doable. So I think local scenes have a lot to gain from this. You know, you, you can't bring in bands and artists from out of town, out of the country. So it's got to be local. Right. And that, that's cool. But then it comes down to, well, where are they going to play? And I've, I've seen people here in LA, like uh, my friend Lena Fornia, really amazing beat maker, producer. She's been doing a monthly event in Limert Park outside. Mm-hmm. And people are just loving that because, like, you know, she's got, a, she's got a sampler drum machine and some musicians and it's, it's a vibe. Mm-hmm. But it's not a revenue stream. Right. You know, it's, it, it makes people happy, love it. Musicians get to play, love that too. It's, it, it, it provides culture. I love that. But it has to be business because otherwise these people are not going to be able to keep playing. True. Well, it's, so I, I don't know, man. <laughs> it, it's going to come to a point where artists are going to have to make a decision where it's like, you know, you can't rely on the venue all the time. You, we've got to eventually buy the venue or create the places of ourselves and right. take, take some of the power away from some of these bigger entities. And, right. you know, it's, it's a it's a, going to be a struggle and a lot of people are not going to want to put in that type of work to do that. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to come a time where, you know, you you're going to be battling so hard. You, you're going to not have no choice, because if if they sit there and drive the price down to a point where, you know, let's say everybody was getting a thousand a gig. Now, all of a sudden you're getting 200 a gig or 150 mm-hmm. a gig. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got everybody in their mama battling for that for that one little piece. So if you 
get together and we put our money together, you know, 10 here, 10 here, you know, let's just buy the building and do what we want to do. It's a little work, but you know, I mean, at that point in time, we have a little bit more control over the artistry that's going on. So, you know, something. Yeah, I, I, I do. Th- I agree that there'll be there'll be new ecosystems for sure. Um, and I am excited about that. I just. I, I feel like when it, when it comes to independent music industry, we weren't done with we weren't finished yet. When it comes to the mainstream music industry, we were done. Yeah. So I was <laughs> I was happy to see. I mean, happy is a bit of a funny word to use, but I wasn't upset to see things get disrupted for the, for the not only the mainstream music music industry, but you know, consumerism at large and capitalism at large, and you know, capitalism is the flip side of, of racism. So that every, you know, everything was shifting, right? Yeah. And so that that's all positive. That's all great. You know, how the how the independent feeds his family, I don't know. That's a, that's a whole other question, right? True. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like for me, when it comes to touring, like that's that's literally all I would do. I barely ever unpack, you know, relationships suffered, family suffered. You know, I was just about the road. And I'm pretty, no, I'm, I'm completely sure now that I don't want to return to that lifestyle. I don't want to be playing you know, like my last Japan tour, I did nine shows in seven cities in eight days. Wow. And that's just, it's ridiculous. And, and it, and it wasn't because they all, you know, paid blue chip. It was because I love Japan. I love playing and that's what I do, but it doesn't, it's not sustainable, you know? And so I'm realizing for myself in some kind of post COVID world that it can't just be about touring. Like touring has to be, you know, projects I really want to do where the business is straight, where it's somewhere I want to be. And I can afford to bring a, a roadie tech who carries all my stuff. And I mean, that's real. That's, yes. I mean, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not, I'm not the, the young man I was 20 years ago. <laughs> Show you on that. And then I, and I, I do think that, you know, especially in Europe, um, it was totally normal for us to play a different country every night. You know, countries are one hour flight away. It's, it's not difficult. Right. So it's, it's kind of like playing a different state every night in, in, in America. Um, I think that model is pretty much over. And I, I could see, I do, I do think there'll be more situations like, um, like kind of deeper work, like say the artist comes into a community for a few weeks and, you know, does workshops and masterclasses and connects with local community, makes music with them, does a concert. And, but it's, it's, it's deeper work. You know, I, I think the kind of in and out every night kind of thing, I just, I don't see how it's logistically possible until the world is fully herd immunity done. Um, and I don't, and I don't see the value in it anymore. Like I, I think the value for me, especially at this point in my life is about the deep work. Like what can I contribute to community and to people beyond this, you know, one hour on stage. True, true. Man, you know, I, I would say, like I said, with the work that you've been putting out, man, you know, um, I don't want to want to butcher. I know like the We See You, We Hear You uh, with the James Baldwin samples. I, I was definitely digging that, you know. I oh, mean, man. I was crying. Like I had tears, man. I was just, there was something about I mean, at, at that point, at the peak of summer last year, 
the question of, I guess, you know, creative allyship. You know, how, how, what can I, what can I contribute to a conversation that is so incendiary, volatile, and but top of mind right now? And you know, without, especially as a non-American, you know, I'm. I'm an I'm a, I'm an I'm an adopted Angelino. Like I've 12 years is it, but I grew up on the other side of the world, pretty much as a third culture kid between Japanese and New Zealand culture. Um, but there was a sense for me growing up of very distinct otherness. There there were no other half Japanese people around me or half Asians around me. So there was always a question of how do I fit in? And in Japan at that time, there weren't many half Japanese kids. So I was like, how do I fit in here? So there was always these questions for me in societally around that kind of idea, um, which I think was probably is probably for me the the kind of the entry point in relatability. Um, not saying they're one and the same, obviously, but just having a perspective of of of, of what otherness is and what what um, discrimination is, and and then understanding the American history and just how necessary changes. So all that shit happening last summer was obviously much needed. Um, and then for me, when I was asked to do that set for, for La Seba Festival, uh, the, the organizer came, hit me up and was, she actually brought to me this term, what's well, a greeting from South Africa, Salubona. Mm. And Salubona, you know, means we see you, we are here. And there's so much in that nuance in, inside those words, which I know that was a, it was a really uh, prevalent greeting at the peak of apartheid as well. And so reflecting on that, she asked me to put a set together and, you know, Baldwin's words are just, they're so powerful and so timeless and so necessary. And, and they also show how nothing's changed. Yes. So to be able to contextualize those within my own art, without you know without trying to you know over insert myself I, I wanted his words to be what it's about you know it's not a it wasn't about hey I, I used some James Baldwin isn't that cool you know that wasn't the point at all and so you know I, I, I found a bit of video I wanted to use and it was really interesting doing that set because you know I'm, I'm on headphones so, so so the sound is like in my head and you know, hearing his voice and his words, you know, giving you a bit of ambience with a bit of delay and reverb. So it's just kind of sitting there and improvising some piano to it without wanting to over-insert myself on him. There was something kind of, for me personally, something emotionally resonant in that moment that just, I don't, of, I don't often get chills from myself while I'm doing something. And so that was a moment where I could feel, you know, I could feel the, what the, the energy that was encoded in the music. And for me, that's, that's the whole mission. It's like, how can I, how, how can I, how can I capture, capture humanity and, and reflect humanity and my own humanity through my art? You know, that's, that's the bottom line, really. That's true. And you, you definitely have, like I said, with your work, you, you definitely, are creating a whole nother different like 
sounding and giving a whole nother voice inside of the way that you incorporate all that stuff. And not a lot of people are able to do that. Even just watching you from a musician standpoint, watching you like MD stuff, like I've, you know, everybody is not able to sit there and control a band and control a unit. (laughs) You have a very unique way of controlling the unit, which is pretty, pretty cool. So, you know, that that, that might be a testament to my, how much of a control freak I am. So I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> but I mean, it's there have been some pretty pretty comical moments too when, you know, if I'm, because I have, you know, because I'm centering the, the electronics and kind of live production in the gig. So I have, you know, the drum machine and effects and keyboards and maybe some bass and, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of control there. So I, mean, I remember times when, in London specifically actually, when some... I remember a kid got up, an MC. He thought it was a jam session, and it wasn't. And um, and so I I used my tools to run him off the stage. You know, I and I, I that's that sounds a little callous, but he shouldn't have been on the stage. Facts. And and I and I could have I I mean I I have actually just pressed stop before. Mm. And so you know the band was to be playing for half a bar, but it's kind of like a record stopping. But this one I just I just ran the tempo up. Like we were like 80 and I just slowly ran it up till we got to about 200 and it just sounded like some crazy frenetic, this, this kid was gone. <laughs> <laughs> he don't have any more bars, no bars. <laughs> but I mean, having said that, I do, you know, I do welcome collaboration. <laughs> I mean, collaboration. <laughs> yeah, I like I mean, collaboration is where the, where all of the magic happens. I think in creativity, all of it. True, true. And you've had some pretty good collabs with a lot of different people, from Cy Smith all the way down to, you know, to a bunch of folks. Um, I, I gotta ask because just with the with the news of us learning that uh, MF Doom passed, man, you oh, know. Man. I'm like, you know, I, you know, I, I still quietly don't have any words for for that. Like, you know, you know, you talking about somebody that's got their own individual sound and stuff oh like God. that. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he could have never picked up a microphone and been one of the greatest producers of all time. He could have never picked up a drum machine and been one of the greatest MCs of all time. You know, it's like <laughs> just so the contribution is amazing. And I guess, I guess if, 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 if anything, I'm grateful we have his art, his creations forever. Yeah. You know, to think that there are probably people out there who, who may be talented in their own ways to that level who we don't get to hear their art or see their art sure. or have it. So that, that's something. Um, yeah, I, I, I got to meet him one time very briefly when I came to LA, when the do-over was still this tiny little thing. Um, but yeah, I, I wish I'd had a chance to have more experience with them. Just and listen, listening to some interviews now and friends who knew him, their recollections, just sounds like a great, a, a great human being too, you know? Right. And, and that's, that's the bottom line, right? True. But yeah, what a loss. Well, we've we got to value people while they're here, right? That's, that's true. It's true. Is there anybody that you would want to definitely collaborate with this year or in the next couple of years that, you know, that's just like on your bucket list of people like I just got to get at least one in, <laughs> at least one? I think so. Um, 
I've been lucky in that most of my bucket list I've been able to tick off, which is kind of insane to me. Um, but I would, I would love to create something with Herbie. Mm. Um, you know, he's just provided an entire lifetime of inspiration and I just feel like mm. we could do some really mm. interesting shit together. Um, Tip has been a long time bucket list. Mm. Um, and then, I mean, there are so, it's, you know, more than the names. I feel like there's so much talent out there. Just, I'm not, Kim Burrell. I would love to do something with Kim Burrell. Wow. wow. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Nope. <laughs> Kim, Kim has a song, Kim Burrell has a song called Seeing Over that I don't know if you're familiar with, but if not, please check it sometime. Like I heard that giant, oh my God, life-changing. I mean, yeah, if I'm talking about vocalists, I mean, there's, there's an infinite number of vocalists to collaborate, right? Right. Um, I mean, Layla would be on the list for sure. Ooh. And then I'm sure plenty of people I've never heard of and never met who are just equally incredible. I would you know put, you I mean? in the, put you in a room with Jacob Collier, James Poyser, and and see what happened. Just the, too, just the too, three too of you many, Too many notes, bro. Too many notes. That's <laughs> <laughs> almost like I a mean, thousand keyboards like laying around. I mean, we had a not a Jacob experience, but when I went to Jazzy Jeff's playlist retreat, um, maybe might have been the second year, or I, I forget. But I remember when we were when we went in the studio the first time. It was crazy. It was it was like Poiser, Musina. Daniel Crawford, wow. Stroh, someone else, myself, and like, I mean, it was just, it was a lot. And just people jumping on and off the keyboards, and it was, it was kids in a candy store kind of thing. And um, we, we, I mean, and I remember we were, we were calling, we we're calling Jeff, we we're calling Jazzy Jeff. Um, it, it was kind of like, 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 oh, what was it? Was it Jefessor X? Something like that. It was like it was long, long lines of the of the X Men. It was like this is the X Men school for the gifted. Like, oh wow! And and Jazzy Jeff is is Professor Xavier. You know, Jefessor X. Wow. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the whole the whole world of collaboration for me has been everything. I mean, you know, musicians who I grew up listening to that I would never have dreamed I would get to work with. You know. Harvey Mason, Pino Palladino, like lo lots of great jazz musicians. And, and then, you know, there's a, there's a joint on one of my records, an album called Renegades, a song called Get Started. Mm -hmm. And um, that was my first collaboration, or maybe second with Omar, singer from the UK. Yeah. But obviously, you know, we don't really have liner notes now, so we don't know who's, who's on the track, but it's like Omar, Sheila E's on percussion, you know, Paladino's on bass. Lil John Roberts is on drums, and it's like, well, what, what more of a band could I want? You know, like. <laughs> so I, I feel like life has been a bucket list in action, and you know, I have immense gratitude around that, and just to the point now where I'm just curious about collaborating. Where I don't, I mean, it doesn't have to be someone who I've heard of before. I'm just, I know that such amazing things can come from it, and such unexpected things. So. Yeah, well, let me yeah. ask you this. Um, 
it seems like the people that you do collaborate with have a very unique sound or style about about them. Is there anything that you're looking for, or is it just what happens? No, that's. I think that's really astute. Um, there is something I'm always looking for, or maybe there's things I'm particularly looking to not have. Okay. Like sometimes it's easier to see what I don't want than to see what I do want. Um, but drummers, drummers are interesting actually. So I've been fortunate to play with almost every drummer I could possibly want to play with. Um, and percussionists are similar actually. And I've had a lot of percussionists I've got, got to work with. Um, but drummers, there's a thing where, like I, I usually, I often will say to a drummer I don't know, you know, it's like, it's like the, the beats, you know, the NPC or the machine or whatever, the beats are the, that's, that's the drums. That, 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 that's, that, that's the sample, but you're like the live break inside the sample. Hmm. And if you don't understand what I'm saying, then I can't really help you, right? And now taking that a step further, it might be a drummer who doesn't understand what I'm saying, but just has a stylistic leaning, which fits in a really interesting way. Love that. I've had a few times where it's a killing, killing drummer and he's a church drummer. And so I didn't grow up playing at a church because I grew up in New Zealand. And so I'm, I'm definitely not disparaging that in any way. But there was kind of a thing I noticed where if it was a hardcore church drummer, he'd treat the beats like a metronome and start practicing all over it. Yeah, that's about right. And <laughs> I see it now. Uh-huh. So, so, so yeah, with the drummer, there's a very specific type. Um, and then beyond that, I just think it's about musicians who are really open-minded. Like I, I don't work well with closed-minded musicians. You know, if a cat's like, you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm in a setting which is presenting my music as jazz and a certain cat's like, that's not jazz, well, we're probably not going to be able to vibe together very well. Or if I'm, or if I'm doing a set in a, like at a house music party and some DJ's like, man, that's not house music. It's like, well, we're not going to vibe together. Like that's not the point. So I think it does come down to open-mindedness. Um, and then, I mean, obviously ability, like, you know, I'm, I like playing with people who can play. Um, and then horn, horn players, similar to drummers that I mentioned before, I played with some horn players who treat what's happening like a metronome. And they're just running, just running shit all over it. Right. And that's not that's not what it is. You know, if we're creating, you know, we're we're basically painting watercolors, even if it sounds like we're dropping bombs. Like you know, the the idea is we're painting watercolors. So can you come in and paint with us, or or not? You know, <laughs> like there's no there's no lines to paint inside of. So if you need the lines you might want to play with someone else. <laughs> That's real. That's real. That's real. And, you know, we appreciate you taking time out your schedule. Definitely, uh, yeah, you know, being on our first episode of 2021. Where, where can our listeners uh, find you at and catch up with you? Absolutely. Man, I, I appreciate being here and chatting with you all. And, and, and that you have, you have questions which are, you know, which are things that we all care about. I appreciate that a lot. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very easy to find depending where you, where you like to be. 
um, Facebook, MDCL Music. It's my initials, MDCL. Uh, Twitter, MDCL. Instagram is my full name, Mark DeClive Lowe. The website is easy, mdcl.tv. And for those who want to come aboard and like get the full experience, the Patreon is kind of crazy. I mean, I, I mentioned it later. I'm going to plug it right now. Um, you know, we do we do everything. We have, I create a monthly exclusive track for the members. We do monthly Zoom sessions where we hang out. I do monthly in-studio Zooms where I'm in studio creating and really breaking down process. There's exclusive vinyl. The last one is, the last one I did, there's six copies in the world and they're only on Patreon. So, you know, stuff like that. I'm trying to try and make that a really special environment. So if that sounds interesting, people can find that at patreon.com slash MDCL. Yeah. Get the Patreon and comp <laughs> all the records. <laughs> it's funny because it's like, I literally made six of these records and I realized, wait, I'm not going to have one. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Got to keep one, at least one, maybe one. Maybe we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> well, cool. Well, we thank you again for for sharing the, these gems and these stories and this knowledge with us. You know, Mark. You know, and hopefully we'll get a chance to hopefully see you sometime this year. You know, if we get back to traveling. If not, I might just be in L.A. there riding down with a with a with a gimbal on a skateboard. Like I'm just just in there just filming in the background. Hey, that, that can get you a lot of views, you know. You'd be surprised. <laughs> yeah. Yes, have a trombone strapped to my back, gimbal, you know, skateboard, you know, drinking, you know drinking some tea, you know. Well, I, I hope I can get back to St. Louis because it's always been fun there and and the food's always good too. So, yeah. This is true. If we can keep our restaurants open. I'm, I, yes, I'm, sir. I've, yeah. You know, yeah. We've, we've had a few that have closed. Like, man, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to speak into existence, you know, none of the other ones. Because if my one restaurant go down, I'm like, Lord, I can't, I can't get seafood no more like I need to. <laughs> so. I hear you, man. I mean, hope, hopefully, you know, for everyone out there, for us and listeners, it's going to be a, a positive, healthy, prosperous 2021, you know? For sure. And this has been Backroom Beats with Mark DeClavlo. You tune into Lamar Harris, aka DJ Nooney and CJ Conrad. Definitely stay tuned and catch us. Follow us on Instagram, on Twitter, the Anchor Channel, and we'll see you guys next time.